Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox, and with me in D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Been a while since we talked. What are you, uh, what are you up to? Uh, not a whole lot. Just um, working with one-on-one students right now for June and getting ready for the next class. You've already got that going, huh? This is like a really down time for me. Uh, are these like brand new students, or are they people you've been working with for a while? Um, no, they just started, so I feel like I'm getting a number of people who are interested in June, I guess, just early starters. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've, I've got uh, just one or two, but this is a really pretty quiet time of year for me. I don't get a lot of emails, I don't get a lot of questions, it's just like everybody's sleeping. That's probably not the best idea, is it? <laughs> uh, best idea to be sleeping? For, for, for people who are thinking about the June LSAT, I would think that this is not the best time to be not doing anything. Yeah, I. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, someone just asked me the other day. They said, um, "Well, they had already taken the test before, and they were thinking they're planning to take it again in June." And they said, "When should I start studying?" And I just said, "You know, um, if you're ready, I would start now because you can always just shoot for like April, kind of like what we were talking about in the last episode. Your suggestion, you know, of having a specific date in mind." And they're like, "Okay, so." Yeah, that that I kind of just thought of that on the fly, but I, I do think that's a pretty good idea to to have a, a date set out, you know, a month or two months before the actual test, where you're like, okay, this is going to be my official practice test. I want to be ready by this date and um, and start shooting, you know, shoot early. For some reason, people think they need to do their prep all right before the test. I think because they're used to cramming for tests in college or something, but. Um, it's not the kind of thing that people tend to forget if they prep early. I don't think I've ever heard anyone, oh, I peaked too early, I prepped too early, you know, (laughs) and I forgot about it. I don't, have you ever heard that? I don't think I've ever heard that. No, and in fact, that was her concern. She was saying, well, what if I, if I peak like a month before and then my scores start start to drop? And my reaction was, well, if your scores drop after you go up, chances are that high score was not really where you were at. And I don't think... Not if it was a single high score. If it was five yeah. high scores, then then that's a different deal, right? Then that's yes. more like burnout or lack of focus or something. Yes. But it's certainly not uh, forgetting. No, no. Yeah, okay. Cool. Well, today uh, on the agenda, we've got three LSAT questions and one admissions decision question. The admissions decision question is a story from a specific listener who uh, has a bunch of offers, and we're going to kind of sort through some of those offers. Uh, with It's got scholarship money involved and admission to a bunch of different schools, so we're going to just kind of hash that out and try to talk about some of the issues that we might think about if we were that student. We're not going to arrive at a decision for that student, but we're going to um, talk about some of the, the factors that we would consider if we were choosing a law school. But before we do that, we're going to do three LSAT questions Again, these are all questions from listeners. We love to get questions from listeners, so please email us. Uh, I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben is ben at strategyprep.com. And the website is thinkinglsat.com. You can leave comments on the blog. You can subscribe to our newsletter. And uh, we really love to hear either questions or uh, just feedback about the show. So please get in touch with us. Especially now, because we're not as busy as uh, we might be when the June test gets closer. Uh, okay, so question number one on our agenda here is, 
does same day blind review have any utility or do I need to wait at least another day after doing the test? And then another question about blind review, should I blind review games and reading comprehension? I think this is going to kick off a, a this whole discussion about blind review. But anyway, Ben, what, why don't you take a first crack at these? Yeah, I guess we should clarify what blind review is. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So <clears throat> blind review, at least from my understanding of it and the way I tell people to do it, is to take a section and to um, mark the questions that you're unsure about and then when you're done with that section to go back over those questions and try to figure out what the right answer is before you grade any of the questions in that section. So you're reviewing blind in the sense that you're reviewing the questions without knowing whether or not they're actually correct. Okay. Is that how you understand it? I've heard different people do different do it different ways. Um, so I think that's the better way to do it. One way that I've heard people do blind review is they'll do a section and then they'll actually just do the entire section again. Um, oh yeah. <clears throat> blind and that that seems like maybe a bit inefficient because I'm. I'm big on reviewing the questions that you don't understand, or I'm, I'm big on reviewing especially the questions that you miss. Mm -hmm. So I don't think blind reviewing the entire section is probably a good idea, not when there's so many sections out there to try to get through. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What do you think about this blind reviewing on the same day versus blind reviewing on another day? Uh, so I actually think the same day is better. Um, I'd be open to arguments otherwise, but... A lot of times what will happen is people will take timed sections, individual sections, or they'll take a full test. And when you take a full test, um, I, I admit it's a little hard to, to quickly turn around and review that test, plus you want to know what your score is, so it's hard to not grade it right away. But um, to the extent, especially when they're taking a timed section in just one section, I would say review it. Uh, do the blind review right then because when you go back to questions and maybe you change your answer, you had chosen A before and now you're thinking, mm, I haven't graded it yet, I don't know what the correct answer is, but I think actually D is correct. And you change it and then eventually a few minutes later after you do the blind review for the other questions, you grade it or maybe you grade that one right then and there. Either way, you figure out whether you got that right or wrong the first time and then right or wrong with your change in answer choice. Um, and I'm not saying you have to change your answer choice. Hopefully you're actually keeping the same answer choice that you chose before, but whatever. The point is, is that in that moment, I think you're far more likely to remember what thought process got you into the right or wrong answer. Whereas if you wait a day, I mean, I feel like so many people say, oh yeah, this answer is obviously D. I have no idea why I considered this a challenging question yesterday. I don't know what I was thinking. And that's kind of the, in those cases, the thought process that got them into the wrong answer in that moment is kind of what they need to change, not necessarily their understanding of the question. So they're actually like losing their mistake if they wait too long, then they're not going to be able to remember the the false pattern that got them into trouble. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I probably would, would also prefer that people do their review on the same day. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot for the same reasons. 
what do you what do you think about do you need to review do you need to blind review all of the questions that you had any trouble with at all or do you need to how how many questions out of a section do people need to be doing this blind review with well um i would say that really depends on the the person's ability where they're at so for example in a logical reasoning section if someone is now what they consider unsure maybe they're maybe they're being too strict with themselves but if they're going through a section and they're unsure about a lot of the questions and they're getting a lot of them wrong then they may need to do more blind review spend more time reviewing questions and trying to really understand them i i sometimes even encourage people to when they're doing this blind review to maybe look up tips for that particular question type so if they know that they're reviewing a necessary assumption question maybe go back and read just a few tips about oh how to approach necessary assumption questions to see if that can tip the balance between the two answer choices that they might be debating between yeah um because the lower your score is the more you need to take time to really get your mind wrapped around what the heck is going on whereas someone who's scoring higher that blind review is going to be shorter because there are fewer questions that they have doubts about yeah for for efficiency's sake i'm very tempted to say that you you shouldn't be reviewing too many questions other than the ones that you miss. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know if I'm 100% on that. It's just that, you know, there's 75 practice tests out there, right? So there's 150 sections of logical reasoning, for example, mm-hmm. that you can be mm-hmm. practicing from. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm very tempted to say, do a section and review the ones you missed. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you're reviewing a lot of other questions in addition to the ones that you missed, then yeah, some of them you, you needed to review because you, you really weren't sure and you kind of got lucky. Mm-hmm. But I would think in the long run, you're gonna get, those mistakes are going to catch you anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I, I don't know, I just don't want people to be wasting time by reviewing shit that they already understand. Yeah, yeah. I, and so in that case, I think they may need to adjust. Maybe they're saying, ooh, I wasn't sure about this question, where in reality they really were. But if there is some sort of doubt, especially on an easier question, you should, or like a lowered numbered question, you should, you should get to the point where you know you're confident in your answer, I think. Right, exactly. And, and so I guess then kind of my, it's, it's not really related to blind review, but just if you find yourself making a lot of mistakes or if you find yourself not understanding a lot of the questions that you're attempting, then my first response is you're just doing too many questions. You, don't, you're, you shouldn't be doing that many questions in 35 minutes. You should be doing less questions with more certainty. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so, okay. So I think blind review is great. I do it in class with my students um, from time to time. Like I'll give them a section of logical reasoning, but I'll have torn the answers off the back and I'll make them uh, just do the test. And then I'll, I'll usually divide them up into threes or fours and I'll have them review 
without knowing the answers. Now, one of them might think they know the answer, and the other one thinks they have trouble with it. So then I'll have them sort of, you know, talk about it. And I think that that can be a really, I do think that that's very useful because once they see, for some students, once they see the correct answer, they just stop learning. Yeah. So that's the purpose of blind review is that you can, you know, you can be looking at all five of those answer choices with, with open, with an open mind and, and not just be like, well, D's, D's on, D's the answer on the answer key. So that's the answer. <laughs> that's not, that's not <laughs> understanding. That's just, yeah. that's just the answer. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I like this idea of if you missed a necessary assumption question or if you're not sure about a necessary assumption question, one really good way to review that question is to say, well, this is a necessary assumption question, and on a necessary assumption question, I am looking for X. So I would say, well, I'm looking for the one that has to be true or else the argument will lose. Mm Mm-hmm. And if all else is equal, I'm probably looking for something that has a little more weakly worded answer choice because that tends to be really strong when you negate it. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, yeah. then, and then, look at, then look at the answers. And then I think a lot of times when you, then, if you knew you had it narrowed down to B and D, but just when you go through that, oh, well, what was I looking for again? And then you look at B and D with that fresh in your head, then I do think that helps a lot to get to the correct answer. Yeah, I do that like when so when I'm reviewing with my with my students in class, that is exactly what I'll do actually. If I go to a, a group and they say we have problems with number fourteen, mm-hmm. a lot of times I'll just you know I won't I won't explain it to them other than to just say well, what are we looking you know what type of a question is this? It's yeah. amazing how often I just say what type of a question is this and the group goes uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, I just walk away, basically. I go, well, there's your problem, so I'll come back. <laughs> you know, let's, maybe we can figure that out, and then, then you know, we'll be on, on the right track. So, okay. Um, what do you think about blind review for games, blind review for reading comprehension? Um, I think for games, if there's a question you couldn't answer, uh, I would definitely say go back and, okay, now you got all the time in the world. Can you test out each answer choice? Uh, it's painful, but I think that going through scenarios can help people gain confidence in knowing when things are when something must be true versus when something doesn't have to be true. Like a lot of times, I'll see a scenario and I'll say, "Oh, yeah, there's no way." T could go first or whatever. And I'll be very confident as to that. And someone will be like, well, I'm not totally sure. I say, well, you see how these things like conflict? That just makes it impossible. Sometimes I think people have to like play that out and write in the variables themselves on a on a diagram. It's not something you want to have to do on the test. but Well, not very often, right? Once in a while, often. you're going to have to test all that. five. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But, um, you know, just going through that process of like writing it out and seeing, oh, yeah, yeah, that definitely does not have to be true. I think it starts to build their confidence and it like stretches their mind so they can start playing these things out in their mind without drawing them. Not to say that you don't draw, of course, but um, for a lot of these, you can just like see it. And so blind review for those kinds of questions that they were just like, I couldn't answer. I mean, there's an answer. You know there's an answer. So try it. And if you still can't do it, then figure out if something's wrong with your diagram. And maybe part of that blind review is just going through each individual rule and saying, okay, have I drawn this? Have I interpreted it correctly? I think I have. 
Um, so can I figure this out? Okay. I guess I, I'm, I'm not, blind review is a, a kind of a recent fad, or at least I've heard people mention blind review way more often recently than they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm almost a bit skeptical of it at this point that, that, uh, the idea that, that I, I, I understand absolutely that, uh, you, you shouldn't just have the right answer circled in red on the page as you're trying to review the question because that right answer circled in red might hurt your ability to really understand or to really go through the analysis. Mm-hmm. So I get all that, but I, I, just, I guess I want to tell people that blind review is not really like a magic formula that, that this is the most important thing. I, blind review to me is like maybe the 10th most important thing that people need to be doing. So... I'm I'm not so caught up in the like people get caught up in how's what's the exact perfect way to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that what they really need to do is be a bit easier on themselves. Um you need to be consistently working every single day to make yourself better at the LSAT. And as long as you're doing that, then you're kind of on the right track. So if because I could see people, you know, this question, does same-day blind review have any utility or do I need to wait at least another day? I mean, if you thought it had no utility, then it could prevent you from actually doing any work, right? You could be like, well, I did that section, but I can't blind review it until tomorrow. Yeah. So now I'll do nothing. And that, that to me seems pretty ridiculous. So I think people need to use some common sense when they're, when they're coming up with their LSAT study strategies. They need to come up with strategies that work for them. Um, if you want to redo all your logic games blind before you correct them, I think that's totally fine. But I also think that a very simple method for studying this test is just to do sections, correct it, but then when you review, review your mistakes or review one or two that you, that you circled that you weren't sure about, but just review it without having the correct answer right in front of you. An easy way to do this is just to use your bubble sheet. Um, people really should be using bubble sheets while they're practicing. If they're, if they're doing a 35-minute section, they need to be using a bubble sheet while they're doing that. Mm-hmm. And then when you correct your bubble, you can correct your bubble sheet, and then you can just mark off, well, I missed number 12, number 15, and number 17, and I, I also circled number 20. And then you can just go back and review that list of questions mm-hmm. without knowing what the correct answer is. And that's blind review, and I think that's I think it's a good idea, but I don't think it's like the be all end all, you know, controlling issue about your LSAT prep. Yeah, and and when I'm, I I think I agree with you uh, in principle, and when I'm thinking about this blind review for games specifically, I'm thinking about a situation where you feel pretty good about the overall game and your setup, and it's like one question that you couldn't solve under the time pressure or you know two questions or whatever and it's like forcing yourself to like can i work through and solve this or before sort of i don't know throwing in the flag yeah sure i and i i do i i encourage people to be a little bit sticky on the games absolutely um but but you i don't think you would tell me if i if i was a student you know let's say typical lsat student who 
on the first night of class, I, I grind my way through games one and two, and I miss a couple of them. And I barely start game number three, but I run out of time. Mm-hmm. Do you now want me to, to go and, and grind my way 100% through game number three and game number four? I would say, yeah, you'd want to do those games before you grade them, right? I mean, if you haven't even attempted them. I would say absolutely not. Wait, why would you why would you why would you say that? Because I think that that student is going to be better off by doing more games 1 and 2. Yeah, I mean you're you're saying because those games are harder, 3 and 4? Yeah. When when a student when a student is making mistakes on game 1 and 2 and then because of those mistakes running out of time and not having any time to, you know, ba- you know, maybe they barely scratch game number 3 and they don't even get to game number 4 at all. So many sections, game number 4 is the hardest game. And I, I, don't, I don't think a student really gets as much out of grinding their way through the hardest game in the section when they already have things that they need to learn about games one and two. So I'm not saying never do those games, but I am saying like on the first night of class or the first, you know, you're, you're, you're a month into your LSAT studying and you're still struggling, if you're, let's say for the student who's still in the single digits on the logic games, of which maybe 40% of all students are in single digits on the logic games, I, don't, I just don't see the benefit in those students grinding through. I see a benefit. I mean, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying, I shouldn't say it's zero benefit. I just think it's less benefit for them to be, to be doing that game number three and game number four than it would be for them to redo games one and two, mm-hmm. maybe redo games one and two five times. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would even say, there's no nothing wrong with moving on to another section, working on some more easier games, because you have to be the expert of the easy games before the. Yeah, um, I guess when you say grinding through a game, you're assuming the student is getting a lot of these questions wrong or just going slow. Because a lot of people, you know, they're just they get through one or two games at the beginning because they're just not going fast enough. But yeah, I. I mean, so, okay, so I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying, yeah, for the student who does game one and two and gets them perfectly correct, but then runs out of time, then I, you know, that student, I feel like they have a pretty good chance of being able to slowly pick their way through game number three and game number four and get them all right. My, my problem is I think it's a big waste of time to be missing questions on the games. So for a lot of students, the students that are in their single digits, they are missing questions on games one and two because they have fundamental things that they don't understand or they're not going carefully enough or they're whatever. They're making mistakes because they're misunderstanding rules. Who knows what? And I don't want them banging their head against the wall because if they had problems with game number one and game number two, they're going to have way worse problems usually with game number three and game number four. So I guess maybe it's just a, a sign. If you're missing questions on the games, it's a sign that maybe you're biting off a little more than you should be chewing. And and so maybe you should back off a little bit and slow down. I, I do find myself a lot of times, mm-hmm. let's say, you know, first night of class, I'm going to review an entire section of the logic games. But I can't get through game three and four without doing some stuff that's a higher level than probably some of the students in the class. So I find myself a lot saying, you know, Game number four here, I am going to go kind of quickly. The reason why I'm going quickly is because this is the hardest game. And I don't want to waste time for those of you who are not yet at this level. 
I just don't want you to be thinking that you have to understand every single one of these things that I'm going to do right now because this is going to this is like a, this is a level up. And some of you are going to be able to follow this and some of you aren't. Do your best. I'll try to explain it. Ask questions if you have them. Mm-hmm. Here we go. And I just won't waste so much time on the super hard game because the 90% of the class really needs to get more solid on the fundamentals of games one and two and maybe three. Yeah. Well, I guess I feel like, I mean, I agree, I, I, I agree in the sense that if you take a test or a time section of games and you only do the first two games and maybe start the third and you finish that section and you're just completely lost and there was no rhyme or reason to what was going on, then I would say go back and don't even worry about finishing that section. But uh, sometimes the, the fourth game is not that hard. Sometimes the third game is not that hard. It just depends. I would say give depending on, I don't know, I mean, I guess I would say go ahead and just give them a shot. And if they were like, because you want them to come back to them eventually, right? I'm assuming. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, this kind of ties into our, our next question, but um, the the typical student is not going to do every logic game that has ever been released. In fact, one out of a hundred, no, one out of 500 students are going to do every logic game that was ever released. So yeah, I'm fine with people taking a crack at it, but if you take a crack at it and there's just, you don't understand some of the rules or it's just, it, it's mind boggling, you have no idea how to set it up. I'm th- I'm then I'm not so sure what the value of that is because it, it has some value, but I think you might have more value moving on to another section and working on some easier, just you know, basic sequencing, basic group, basic grouping type of game, mm-hmm. um, rather than messing with the really hard stuff. I mean, I I definitely agree with that in the sense that after someone takes a time test, at least with me. Um, we then turn our focus to easier games and then slowly work up from easier games to medium games and so on. But, um, and I wouldn't want them wasting time with harder games in terms of like their targeted practice. But if they had taken the time to expose themselves to a section, I guess that's where I'm thinking, eh, finish it off because, you know, unless it was, I, I agree with you, unless it was totally like they had no idea what they were doing and they were just kind of, answering the first question to each game and kind of just fiddling their thumbs through the rest, just stop there and then go try to make sense of those first two games that you attempted. But Cool. Well, I, I mean, I think we're on the same page. I, again, I'm not saying don't do it. I am saying uh, stop banging your head against the wall on the really hard stuff. For example, a really terrible strategy would be to buy the book that says you know, 20 hardest logic games ever and have that be the first thing that you do. Yeah, not only would it be not good for your, like, (laughs) learning, but also those games are, like, one-off games, right? They're just not going to appear on the test very likely, so. But I think that tends to be the case with a lot of the game fours anyway. I mean, I I think, like... They don't throw very many curveballs, right? The the LSAT is just a is pretty pretty predictable as far as the logic games are concerned. But if they are gonna throw you that change up or that curveball or whatever, it's gonna be it tends to be later in the mm-hmm. test. Yes. 
And yeah, just like you say, they're they're not as indicative of what you're likely to see on your actual test, and they're harder. I think you have less that you're going to be able to learn from that if you're not quite at that level. Mm-hmm. And it can totally ruin your you know, your psyche as well. I mean, people have a fixed amount of like energy that they can devote <laughs> to this. And if they're not having successes, then I think that's more expensive. It's more taxing on on them. So I guess I just I tend to tell people that you know it should feel easy, and you know there's levels, and for some people you really just need to learn how to master game number one. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have game number one mastered, then well you need to master that, Uh, and then you can work on game number two. And you don't necessarily need to master all four games on a specific test before you move on to another test because there are 75 of them available. Anyway, okay. Sounds like we mostly agree. Maybe we have a little bit of a difference of opinion there, which is good. Um, Okay, I'm going to move on to the next question on the agenda. How different are the prep tests throughout the years if I have a lot of time to study and am determined to complete every published exam? Should I start with the earlier ones or the later ones, or should I switch back and forth? Um, I, I feel like this is a this is an easy question in some ways. Uh, the tests are definitely different, different enough that I don't know how much to read into this, but LSAC is no longer licensing tests one through seven, no one through sixteen. So the first sixteen LSATs that were released. Are no longer, are going to be no longer available in about a year. Okay. Um, and the, I, I just asked them out of curiosity. I said, "Oh, so these now free like the June two thousand seven test?" And they said, "No, we consider the standards that we had back then were different, not as rigorous, and so we just don't think they're reflective of the current test." I would take that even further and say, um, a lot of tests before. Even test thirty-eight, which is somewhere in the nineteen what nineteen ninety-nine, maybe uh, that those tests are are easier, especially when it comes to reading comprehension. The reading comprehension changed in September two thousand, well June two thousand seven. Um, but not only did it change by adding the comparative passages, but it got harder, and then it got harder again in the sixties, which would be um, what was that? That was December of two thousand ten. Test 61, which is uh, October of 2010, the logical reasoning definitely got harder. So bottom line, I'm I'm giving a lot of random details, but the tests have gotten harder over time. There have been some fundamental changes uh, in terms of like reading comp and so forth, but I would say you definitely want to focus on the most recent tests, September 2007 and up. For sure, maybe a little bit before that, but if you go too far before that, I feel like they're just easier and not the same. Okay, um, I definitely agree with you. It sounds like if the LSAC's putting tests, what did you say? Is it one through seventeen? Uh, yeah, one, out of one play? through sixteen, I think technically. One through mm-hmm. sixteen. Okay, I, I think we can go ahead and put all of those <laughs> out of play. Um, nobody really tends to have those. T- I mean. I guess if you're pirating them, then you have all of them. Yeah. But um, I've never seen really students come. They don't. They don't tend to ask me questions. For example, from test three, um, I don't ever get those questions. So okay. So maybe there aren't 75 tests that we can actually practice from. Maybe there's 
less than that if we're going to knock out I'm willing to knock out one through 16. So now we're looking at something more like 60 tests. Um, I know you say, Ben, that the reading comprehension has gotten harder. I don't see that. It, to me, it doesn't look harder. Okay. The logical reasoning also doesn't look harder. I, I what do you, To me, what do you I don't see any difference. To? Because like when I have people t- practice reading comp in, you know, the... The first, no, no, sorry, the third, volume three, the third book of 10, which is tests 29 to 38, um, yeah. a lot of people will, they'll be like, hey, look, I'm struggling with reading comp. I need more reading comp passages. So I say, well, here's here's 10 tests, uh, and they all have reading comp, of course. So go ahead and do these. And their scores will be, you know, we're not talking a whole lot here, but notable two to four points higher than what they see on tests 60s the test in the 60s and and I think the 70s so interesting I I'm a skeptic I I mean I trust you Ben I, I <laughs> believe right. I believe what you say <laughs> I believe what you say but I to me I would my my gut says um, that's small sample it's also <clears throat> the test you're giving them the next 10 the book of 10 called the next 10 yes. right that's the one that's the one in the middle um, mm-hmm. That with has older older reading comprehension, but see they've been studying already. So now when you give them that new book, now they're doing more reading comprehension, and they're specifically focusing on practicing reading comprehension. So if their scores go up by two to four points, to me that's they've learned. Yeah, well, it's not unfortunately it's not that simple because I mean unless there's something going on with the fact that they're taking it at home, but uh, or on their own because what's what's going on is we're taking a test every. Saturday, and so then they're they're seeing these higher scores in that book, and then they're taking the test on Saturday and saying this feels harder, my score is lower. Yeah, um, but that's got all sorts of confounding variables. For one, they're yeah, the difference between taking the test at home and taking it in that proctored environment is just not the same thing. You know. Um, People don't do as good of a job timing themselves strictly when they take tests at home. People allow themselves to take breaks and stuff, which they're not really allowed. People do all sorts of things. They, they didn't have to show up at a specific time in a specific place, and they didn't have to sit next to a bunch of other sweaty, nervous people. There was nobody in the room tapping their pencil, etc. So I don't know. I You know what I think I would like to do for my own class is just to get I should get more systematic about tracking the data and see if there's actually like a difference maybe we could both start doing that um, you know specifically test it sure. mm-hmm. um, in both of our classes to get bigger data sets yeah. but I think we'd have to do it solely with just proctored uh, proctored environment in order to clean up the, the data mm-hmm. source anyway I mean if do you, when you look at those passages, do you substantively think that they're hard, are they is it harder to understand the passage or is it harder to answer the questions or what? Yeah, I I feel like the questions are um, like there's more answer choices that are close to each other. So when I when I look and maybe this is my own um, <laughs> confirmation bias and I think that these are easier, so I'm looking for it. <laughs> so it's possible, Ben. I know you're a scientific kind of a guy, but. It's, <laughs> It is not. It's 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 a hypothesis. Yep. Okay, okay, go ahead. So what I feel like is I do feel like when I'm going through those those older reading comp passages that um, 
I'll have an answer in my mind. So for example, main point question, I'll have an answer in my mind. I'll say, okay, here's what yeah. I think the main point is. And then I'll go through the five answer choices and I'll be like, no way. This is out there. And I'll do that for four of the answer choices and I'll be like, okay, so there's no hesitation about choosing the correct answer. Whereas I feel like more frequently, uh, not that this didn't happen in the past, but I feel like more frequently there will be answer choices that are closer but there's just like a word that's off or it's 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 a it's an important premise of the the passage but obviously not the main point and thus wrong but a lot of people are sitting there hanging up on it and saying wait this is true this the passage said this yes it did but that's not the main point you see how this is actually more of the main point and so i just feel like there's more not that the passages are necessarily harder but the answer choices have been written in such a way that you're 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 less likely to dismiss things as wrong as quickly. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I believe you that that's your perception <laughs> of it. I I don't um I do not share that same perception. Um So anyways, I I don't know. I my gut says in my opinion, I don't see any difference on the logical reasoning or the reading comprehension. I mean, yeah, it's changed subtly over the years, but I don't know that the, I wouldn't, I would not say that the logical reasoning is harder or easier. I would not say that the reading comprehension is harder or easier. Um, you, you say both reading comprehension and logical reasoning are harder. Yes. Okay. And then, I would um, say more so games, for reading comp, but yeah, more so for reading comp. Okay, cool. Interesting. And then, um, for, uh, for games, what about games? I feel like games, um, so games are s- a little strange. Uh, I feel like a long time ago, before volume three, in other words, before test 29 through 38, you had games that were extremely hard. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the hired and interviewed game. And yeah. then you have also these games that really, really hard game side by side in the same test as just a mind-boggling easy game that people who have no experience with the games would sit there and be like, yeah, A, C, D, blah, blah. Yeah. And so it, it was like they were trying to like learn their way, I feel like. Um, not to say that we don't have strikingly hard games and easy games together now. I just felt like it was more so in the past. Then in test 29 to 38, there's just a lot of hard games in that, that book. And then I feel like they kind of got a little bit easier in the 40s and the early 50s, and then near the end of the 50s, which would include the dinosaur game, um, the summer courses game. Those are two in-out games that are tough. They 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 have some tougher games. Um, I don't know. I feel like uh, it's hard to say because even even now. Like you have these few tests like 72, 68, and so forth where they have pretty like remarkably easy games. Not as easy as the ones at the very, very beginning of the LSAT, but easy, 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 and then extremely hard for a lot of people because they've never seen that game before or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think any test has a chance of popping up with a, a pretty hard game. Um, my sense is just that the games have gotten easier since, let's say, the late 1990s. Well, early 2000s, there's some pretty tough games. Mm-hmm. Since then, I, definitely in the late 2000s and in the early 
so far in the 20 what are we calling this the teens i guess in the um in the teens mm-hmm. um i i think I, I just think they're easier now than they were uh 15 years ago the games i think are easier now um anyway so let's go back to this this we, we've addressed how different are the prep tests throughout the years um i think I would definitely say that the newer tests are different. They're not, I don't think, dramatically different. They are, maybe test 75 is dramatically different from test one, but I don't think that, it, it, it has, the changes have been subtle and they've been very slow. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think we can agree on that. Um, okay, so this student says, I have a lot of time to study and I am determined to complete every published exam. Should I start with the earlier ones or the later ones or should I switch back and forth? I think we're both saying don't necessarily do every published exam. I would think there's more value in redoing recent exams than going back and picking out a totally new old exam, depending on how far back you go. Okay. I think I can agree with that. Um, I also think that if you do enough of the recent tests and then you start looking at the older tests, you'll be able to tell where they're not, um, where it's like not really a, a match, where the, where where they've changed, where the old tests were different enough that it's like not really that much worth your time. Particularly on the logic games, right? You'll be able to see some of those old logic games. Some of them are perfectly predictive of the games that we have today, yeah. but some of them are just so much harder that um, you could probably tell that that's not you like a game with you know ten variables and it's grouping and sequencing simultaneously and <laughs> there's just all sorts of crazy stuff going yeah. on is probably not worth your time and you'd be better off redoing the games uh, the modern games yeah okay so I think then the plan for this listener is definitely not start with. Uh, test number one and go through to test 75. No. And I I also, what do you think about the guy who says, I'm going to save the most recent 10 practice tests. I'm going to save those. I'm going to save those for the end of my studying. What do you well, think about that? So what I usually encourage people to do is, this is kind of what I've settled on, is that <clears throat> let's say they start studying 12 weeks or 15 weeks, which is a decent amount of time before the test. Um, I would say, okay, I'm going to take 10 tests on Saturdays um, that simulate the actual exam. And I'm going to do those 10 most recent tests on those Saturdays so that they are the most current and most reflective. A lot of those are going to be the Saturdays leading up to the exam, but I would do some of them at the beginning of my study. So, for example, if I started, the most recent test is 74. So let's say we started with test 65. Um, And so it's like I'm just starting studying. I go take test 65, so it's a very recent test. It's not the most recent test, but it's a very recent one. I can get a sense of what my score is actually going to be right now with a, a very recent test, take that on a Saturday morning, or I guess if you're prepping for June, <laughs> if you could take it on Monday afternoon, that'd be great, or in the afternoon, it doesn't have to be Monday, of course, but um, right. <clears throat> anyways, take that test in a time condition, feel, see what happens, then go and study 
target certain sections, games, as we've been talking about, or reading comp or logical reasoning or whatever, and start with the easier stuff, and then go take uh, two weeks or three weeks later another test, I would take 66. So it's like you have this one track that's leading up to the most recent exam, and at first it's maybe every two weeks or something like that, and then as you get closer to the exam, it's every week. But outside of that, outside of those tests, 65 to 74, I would then take other tests um, that are also fairly recent. So in my mind, I'm thinking of tests 52, which is September 2007, up to test 64, the test that right before the 65 that I, uh, I would start them with. And those tests they're taking during the week in between those like full-fledged proctored exams and so yeah. really what they're going is they're, they're doing a little bit of back and forth between a very recent test uh, under proctored settings and then these semi-recent tests either proctored by themselves if they're proctoring them themselves or individual sections because a lot of people are working so they can only do one or two sections at a, at, at night or whatever but the idea is that you're sort of bouncing back and forth between semi-recent and then the most recent test. So in some ways, yes, I'm saving them, but the, that it's being spread out over their whole study. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a pretty common mistake is to save all of the brand newest tests for later and, and spend all your time on the older tests and then run out of time and not actually do those newer exactly. tests. So that, for me, yeah. that schedule forces people to get through them. It also forces them to check in with what I think is a slightly harder test and so that they're having a realistic score assessment and not you know, taking, in my opinion, older and thus easier tests. Yeah. I mean, the way I structure my classes is a little bit different, but I'm doing something very similar to what you're doing. I actually have them do... Like if someone's with me for twelve weeks, they'll do the first test they'll do is like June twenty twelve, and then uh, a couple weeks later they'll do June twenty thirteen, and a couple weeks later they'll do June twenty fourteen, mm-hmm. and then interspersed in between those they'll do some of the tests from like you're talking about the fifties and the sixties, um, and then four weeks the next four weeks they'll do the September October. Yeah. 2012, September, October, 2013, September, October, 2014. Yeah. So then, yeah, it's the same thing though, right? They're, they're doing, you're using the very most recent tests. You're using those as sit down, take the whole test proctored exams. And then the older tests, you're using those, uh, you're interspersing and using them a little more liberally using them for practice. Yes, exactly. Same principle. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So our advice is switch back and forth. And really focus on the most recent ones. If you know, if you do, if you do the most recent, let's say twenty tests, you're going to be more prepared than the average person in the room. Yes. The side note here: I, I'm surprised how many people call me up or email me, and I say, "So you've been prepping for a year, or you took a test master's class, or whatever." Not to like <laughs> target test masters, but any class. And they say, I say, okay, so which t- how many tests have you taken? Like full tests. I just want to know so I can see how many tests you have left. And they'll say something like, I've taken three, three totally. tests or four tests, something. Holy smokes. Like you need to take, well, it's, it's a good opportunity. There's a lot of tests you can take, and that's probably going to do a lot for your score. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty fatal flaw of most of the big prep programs out there is just not simply doing more tests. I don't know why they don't do more tests. Yeah, I don't get it either because you actually don't need to pay for a expensive LSAT teacher. You can just pay someone to proctor it. Exactly, right, exactly, yeah. Uh, hey, if you're listening, <laughs> test masters, here's a way that you could save money. But yeah, no, um, I, I hear the exact same thing. I hear people who have been studying for six months and they've, you know, they're yet to do their first full practice test. Or they've, yeah, they've, they took a, a Kaplan class and I say, how many tests did you take? And they say, well, I've taken, you know, I've taken three. Here's my three practice test scores. And meanwhile, my students are racking up, you know, uh, six or nine or, or more, right? My online class focuses on 19 full length practice tests. And I encourage students to, record all 19 of those practice test scores, um, how many correct in each section, and also how many they attempted in each section so that they can accumulate a pretty robust set of data so that they can start to see real patterns in how they're doing. Because, you know, the truth is you just don't know how you're doing on the LSAT if you're not doing timed practice tests. Okay. Great. Um, last LSAT question, and then we'll move on to some admissions stuff. The listener asks, um, should I study by question type? I assume this applies to the logical reasoning. Uh, what do you think about studying logical reasoning broken down by question type? Yes, I think it's a good thing to do, um, especially at the beginning, to get your mind wrapped around like what exactly are they asking for in this question type and what am I supposed to do? But um, I would definitely, kind of like what we were just talking about, intermingle that with full-length sections so you get a sense of what it's like to jump around because a lot of times when you're doing the same question type over and over again, people stop reading the question. I mean, they may literally read it, yeah. but they don't really think about it. Um, sort of a compromise between that. Sometimes I will give people sets of questions, if we're talking about logical reasoning, for example, that mix two or three question types so that people have to jump around but they're not jumping around between all 15 or 16 question types. Huh. Interesting. So yes, more so at the beginning and that's going to go down as you start doing more and more time sections, I would say. Interesting. Yeah, I focus on timed sections. I focus on mis mixed sections, but I also use my logical reasoning encyclopedia as homework. So I, and I definitely do encourage people to drill um, one question type at a time, but I do that as, I do that as homework and I'm always interspersing it with mixed sections. Yes. Um, it's really important, exactly what you say, it's really important to do mixed questions because you need to be able to do the mixed section and on whatever question you're working on, you need to be able to identify that question type. Like I said earlier, that's just a major mistake that that a lot of students make is that they, they don't actually pay attention to what type of a question they're working on on the logical reasoning. And that is critical to uh, understanding the question. So um, my advice would be do a lot of mixed sections and then mix it in with intensive study of particular question types, especially if there's a question type that you're having a hard time with. Um, for example, a lot of people have a hard time with sufficient assumption questions, but I've said we talked about this a couple episodes ago. I think sufficient assumption questions are actually pretty easy once you get the hang of it. 
So if you find yourself mix, uh, missing a lot of sufficient assumption questions, one thing that you could do is just grab my logical reasoning encyclopedia and do, you know, 10, 20, 30 sufficient assumption questions in a row. And then I think that might help you just like see the pattern of the way that it works. But I would definitely not build the bulk of your studying around that because exactly like you say, Ben, people just, their brains shut off and they, they stop, they, they stop. <laughs> the, the, the important step is identifying the type of question and they stop doing that. And if you don't do enough mixed sections, then you're going to struggle with yeah. that. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. <clears throat> um, the last one here, this is an admissions question. I have been getting quite a few of these uh, this time of year because people are now getting their offers in. And um, I encourage people to send me a list, actually a spreadsheet of uh, all of their offers. And I like to look at those spreadsheets and I like to try to help them think about what I would do, what which offers I would accept or which offers I would ask for more money, that sort of thing. Yeah. So here, here we go. Um, what's the fun part, right? I mean, I enjoy... I enjoy the part where we're talking about, you know, comparing a full ride at one school to a $30,000 a year scholarship at another school. That's really very gratifying part of what I do. Um, and I don't do that professionally. I just do that kind of as a favor for my students. And I just, I like to hear what they're, what they're up to and what kind of offers they're getting. Yep. But anyway, so this uh, student has Temple Law, full tuition scholarship, with a requirement that uh, he maintain a 2.5 GPA. Another offer is from Seton Hall, and it's a full tuition scholarship, and it says, I don't see any scholarship renewal requirements here, so I guess I'm assuming that that's just, if you remain in good academic standing, you're gonna keep your full tuition scholarship. If not, you know, if that's not the case, then this student really needs to ask Seton Hall, hey, what are the requirements for renewing the scholarship because those scholarship renewal requirements can really get you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess I should just, you know, I, there are schools where you have to maintain a 3.0, but the average GPA at that school is a 2.7. And that can be a real gotcha when, it, you know, <laughs> at some schools, at some schools, uh, two thirds of the students are going to lose their scholarship after their first yeah, year. Yeah, that's like the that's like the first two months of your cable bill are free. Right. Yeah. Line up and hmm. totally. Yeah. So so please, everybody out there, when you're getting these scholarship offers, please ask them what the scholarship requirement renewal requirement is. And think a little more deeply than if they say 3.0. You know, I know you've never gotten less than a 3.0 in your life. Um, but it's it's more possible in law school than you think it is. And if their average GPA is 2.7, then it's actually pretty likely that you're not going to have a 3.0. And I know nobody thinks they're going to be the one who's going to finish in the middle of their class, but on average, you're going to finish in the middle of your class. Um, okay, so anyway, we got Temple at a full tuition scholarship with a 2.5 GPA requirement. We've got Seton Hall with a full tuition scholarship, and I guess I'm assuming no scholarship requirement, at least for the purposes of this discussion. Then we've got Emory at a $33,000 a year scholarship. The tuition is $49,000, so there's actually a $16,000 a year gap there. Yeah. Okay, and the listener says, and then there there's no, I don't see any scholarship requirements there either, so 
maybe I think that's actually maybe negligible for this discussion because the 2.5 GPA requirement at Temple seems 2.5 is fairly low. I don't think that their average GPA is going to be anything close to 2.5. So um, that seems pretty doable. Matter of fact, you know, if you go there and you get less than a 2.5, you should probably just be dropping out of law school anyway. Um, so that's probably fine. Well, let's assume that the renewal requirements are um, equal for these three offers. Temple, full ride, Seton Hall, full ride, Emory, $33,000 a year, which leaves a $16,000 a year tuition bill. And the student says, so the obvious issue here is ranking versus money. Emory's 19th in the nation, but I'm still going to rack up at least $125,000 in debt there. Um, I guess that probably makes sense, right? $16,000 a year of tuition adds up to about fifty grand. And then $25,000 a year worth of living expenses leaves you with $125,000 in debt. Yeah. Well, because he's saying that he would get 70, he'd be $70,000 in debt with Temple, right? So, and that's a full tuition scholarship. So I guess that he's estimating 70K and living. Yeah, about $25,000 a year worth of living expenses, um, which I think makes sense. I mean, yeah, the, the full, if you pay full tuition and full living expenses, you're looking at you've got to be looking at two hundred thousand dollars at most of these schools yeah. if you're gonna if you're gonna go into debt for the full tuition and the full living expenses. I think it's two. I think it's two hundred thousand dollars. That's a that's an exciting number. That is a large number. That is a house. It's a house in Texas. It's like five houses in Detroit. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Student is still waiting to hear from Fordham, BU, Georgetown, but thinks he's going to run into the same issue even if he's admitted there, which obviously he is, because even if they give him a full ride, he's still thinking about the $70,000 of living expenses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he wants to know what we would do. We could talk about this for 10 hours, but what? Let we, let's talk about it instead for 10 minutes. What do you think? Yeah. Um, do you know what the ranking is for a Seton or Temple? I don't. We could look it up. Um, I guess I know we've talked about this before and when it comes to law school, you know, location is a lot bigger factor than a lot of people think. A lot of times people just look to the numbers. But Emory is it is pretty highly ranked, so I think it's starting to get into national reach territory even though it's 19th. I mean it's not the top 14, but top 20 is still still has some a national reach that these other schools wouldn't have I'm assuming depending on how how they're ranked so I guess I, the first thing I would do is I would probably go back to Emory and ask them if they can up it because if they can up the offer then the $50,000 gap would narrow substantially to the point where maybe it's the same i totally agree with that um, i'm doing a little bit of research here seton hall 68 okay where is that located sorry i should know this but uh seton hall sounds like sec um yeah i don't know either because i mean that's another thing that he would seriously need to consider i know he said oh, that he's new jersey interested... newark new jersey okay he's interested in public interest but the lower-ranked law school that you go to, all the more likely that that's where you're going to practice or at least find a job 
that's related to what you want to Yeah, and it, totally. I mean, and and no matter where you go, that's that's an issue. That's true. Um, I mean, it's just even more so for lower rank correct. schools. Correct. Even for higher rank schools, you're gonna probably end up where you're you're going. That's where you're creating relationships, etc. Yeah, you're gonna have judicial externships and connections and law firm connections and the, all the alumni of your school are going to be heavily centered around the place where you went to law school. So yeah. I, yeah. And I, and I think that that drops off fairly steeply from the top 14. I mean, of, of course, if you go to Stanford, you can go to you work anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, although the people who go to Stanford are still going to be focused in Northern California. Yeah, um, exactly. The you're because you're going to get connected, you know, in three years of your life, you're going to like get married. I mean, you're going to, you're going to get, <laughs> you're going to get in car accidents. You're going to ha- buy houses. You're going to do all kinds of crazy shit's going to happen to you in those three years. And so, yeah, when you go, if you, if you go across the country to, to go to law school, you need to be remembering that you could be moving there permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I, I totally agree that geography is an issue can we talk about the, the the public interest aspect of it? Uh, we can. My my reaction to that is, boy, I don't know anything about what these how these schools would help in that. My only thought would be the higher ranked school would probably make it easier for you. Well, public interest. What exactly does he mean by that? I guess. Right. So, public interest is a really, really broad um, category. It's, it can be anything, you know, it can be, um, so uh, I think public defenders or DAs are considered to be public interest lawyers because they're working for the government. So any government job, I think, is automatically public interest. I think any nonprofit job is automatically public interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the big, like, yeah, the big NGOs and stuff, those are probably nonprofits. So there, there's, a, there's a wide range of, um, wide range of p- jobs that will fall under the public interest category. Some of them are really super competitive, right? I mean, the the top government jobs are really, really competitive. And if you want to get the top, top government jobs, you should probably be thinking about going to top, top schools so that you can make the best connections that you can make and, um, and get, get, get in there, get, get in the door there. Um, what about, do you, do you have people asking you about public interest loan repayment programs? Uh, I do. I would. I this is the, my own biases are coming in here, but I would. I would be very skeptical about any plans I have about what to do with my law degree um, before going into law school. Like I wouldn't be surprised at all if this person, you know, went to law school and then said, you know what, I don't want to do public interest. I want to do corporate law. Yeah. Or whatever and so i mean while it doesn't hurt at all and it's very very smart to try to minimize the amount of debt just so that you can do whatever um i guess going back to our discussion earlier i think a lot about where he wants to live so for example he said he's still waiting from to hear from fordham bu and georgetown like emory's in georgia apparently and temple hall is in philadelphia Georgetown's here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Fordham is up in New York. I guess that's kind of close to New Jersey. But I I might, despite the additional costs, 
I might seriously consider the location. I guess I'm sort of dodging the question about the public interest, but I I don't really know what to recommend in terms of which law school to go for on the basis of that. Yeah, I I would like to caution people who plan on the law school of uh, the uh, public interest loan repayment programs because they do exist. There's a there's a federal government program that right now if you work for 10 years in the public interest and you never make above a certain amount of money, I think it's around $60,000 a year if you uh, Let's say you're a you know public defender and you make fifty five assistant public defender whatever you make fifty five thousand dollars a year you work for ten years um, the federal government right now is going to uh, through this program they're going to forgive your loans so the principal of your loans after ten years will be paid off mm-hmm. that sounds awesome except for the part about how you have to work in the public interest for ten years consistent you know without um, you have to work in the public interest for 10 full years. You can take breaks, but you have to work in the public interest for, you have to put in your 10 years yeah. and you can't make more than X dollars during, you know, during that time or else that time doesn't count for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You also can't get married to someone who makes more money, no matter what they do, because you'll have to lump your incomes together. And then I think the income requirements are a little bit higher, but you're going to end up, if you marry anybody who makes any kind of a decent living, you're going to be over the the limit for your getting your free tuition paid back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think when you add up all of that, it becomes. I, I would be really interested to know how many people start law school intending to participate in this program, and then how many actually end up getting their loans forgiven. The other thing yes. is that you you still have to make your loan payments over in those intervening 10 years you still have you still have to service that debt um, you can go into income-based repayment which lowers the amount that you're actually paying back uh, every month your, your your monthly payments you know they don't have to be two thousand dollars a month especially because a lot of people who are working in the public interest would have no ability to pay two thousand dollars a month mm-hmm. to service their debt um, but so you can go into income-based repayment and pay less, but then that just means that the principal of your loans is accumulating even more. So then you're even more on the hook that like you really have to stick with this program. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you decide to not work in the public, if you hate your job in the public interest and you can't find another job in the public interest, and there's some corporate gig, you know, if you take that, and if then you're not gonna, it doesn't matter how much how much money you make, you're not gonna qualify for this program anymore. Yeah. Um. There are schools have individual programs that pay off, that, that pay those monthly payments, but those programs at different schools are varying degrees of uncertainty. So I know, like at Hastings here in San Francisco, you have to reapply for that money every six months or whatever, mm-hmm. and they always tell you that there's no guarantee. And I think recently they've so far they've been making those payments, mm-hmm. but if they ever got into uh, financial trouble. If, for example, there was a major downturn in um, the number of people applying to law school, <laughs> and law school started really struggling, I could definitely see them cutting that money, you know, or saying, "Hey, we're not going to pay all your payments now," because you you actually have to make the payments yourself, and then Hastings repays you for the. Well, I'm surprised that they even make those payments, like with this downturn? <clears throat> yeah, well, who knows? I mean, I'd like to hear from listeners if people have 
have friends or whatever that have gone through this, I would love to hear what's happening out there. But yeah, I would not be surprised at all if that money got cut. And even the federal program could always get cut. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no guarantee that 10 years later, who knows? We don't know what the president's going to be. We don't know what Congress is going to be. We have no idea who's going to come in there. And one easy way to, to, to solve the, the budget crisis in the year 2020 might very well be, hey, what's what are we forgiving these? What are we forgiving these? Lo- why are we letting lo- why are we giving lawyers free money? These people have JDs. Why are we forgiving them? You know? We 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 financed their education. Now they they committed to paying it back. Like why are we gonna why are we letting them off the hook here? Why don't we? I, I can't you see a Congress deciding they wanted to? S- oh sure, yeah. <laughs> change that. I mean it's it's happened right, and it's happening too. Like it just happened with the uh, people who save money for college. Now they're saying they might tax it or they. Oh jeez. Wow. Okay. Okay. So. Um, just be skeptical of these the public interest loan repayment programs. One, you might change your mind about what you want to do with your life. Most people do when they go to law school. Two, the program might not even be there anymore. So be careful. Um, we do need to wrap this up, but I agree with you, Ben. I would ask these schools for more money. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know this student says. I just can't believe that Emory offered me X and I, but I would, I would totally ask Emory for more. <laughs> yeah. Um, be Telling nice. Telling them what you got a full scholarship here and you're just, you're really torn or whatever. Yeah. I would, I would tell the truth here. I don't think I would mention names, but I would say I have multiple full tuition scholarship offers in hand and I'm really concerned about the job prospects for lawyers these days mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if there's anything that you can do you know to reconsider my scholarship offer yeah they're they're used to getting these requests if you're not asking for more money other people are asking for more money uh, they're never gonna say never mind we don't want to admit you anymore yeah <clears throat> and you know as long as you're polite about it mm-hmm. so I would absolutely ask for more money and then the other thing is He's still waiting to hear from Fordham, BU, and Georgetown. So there, I, I just have to say, you, you, you absolutely do not need to commit to anything right now. I mean, it's only February. Mm-hmm. Law school doesn't start until September or late August. Yeah. So you probably do, you know, I know that for, for life reasons, you, you'd like to get it locked in. You want to know where you're going to live for the next three years. You want to probably start be thinking about housing and um, all that kind of stuff. But I would encourage the student to push off this decision as late as possible. I've even heard stories about people making decisions in June, July, August, even about where they're going to go to law school. Hmm. Yeah. So probably what's happening is that Temple, Seton Hall, Emory, they're all asking him to make deposits. Yeah. I would ask them to push those deposit deadlines back. Yeah. I would ask them for more scholarship money. I would consider asking Temple and Seton Hall if they have anything like book stipends or living stipends or anything like that, like full tuition. That's great. What else can you do for me? Yeah. I wouldn't say it that way, but I would say it nicely. Yeah. Is there anything more that you can do here? And then I would wait for the offers from Fordham, BU, and Georgetown before I made any big commitment. I mean, it would be tragic to 
just snap up this offer from Emory and then get into Georgetown, yep. you know, especially if they gave him some money. So I would just, I think, yeah, I think February might be too soon to be making this decision right now, especially when there's outstanding offers. Yeah, and I've heard some people who said that they didn't have deadlines to put down a deposit or they hadn't heard them yet or, or I, I I told them to check to make sure, but I was surprised at how much time they had to, to make a decision. So I think a lot of schools are, are being really flexible. This year especially, right? All the deadlines are just getting pushed deeper and deeper. We were talking about this last time. Um, so yeah, I would I would negotiate hard if I were you. Remember that the law schools are made up of nothing but lawyers and lawyers are tough negotiators and this is a negotiation. So you need to be really polite about it, you know, with a smile on your face and and humbly you you need to be asking for more money and telling them that you you're sorry but you can't commit to them just this second and you want to know if you can get back to them later and by the way also could they reconsider their scholarship offer yeah yeah i agree cool um all right that's i think all we've got on the agenda for today anything uh anything else you want to add ben no that's all it's uh we covered a lot so yeah great um you can email ben ben at strategyprep.com you can email me nathan at foxlsat.com and you can visit our website, thinkinglsat.com, where you can leave comments on the episodes. We uh, have been getting some of those comments recently, and we like to respond to those. Um, and we, you can subscribe also to our newsletter. We do have the Logic Games book coming out later this year, and we're going to have some free content from that games book to distribute uh, sometime soon. So please get yourself on the list uh, at thinkinglsat.com so that you can get updates about that book. and. Um, uh, we're also sending out updates for each new podcast episode. So if you want to know when the new episodes are out, get yourself on that newsletter and you'll find out. Cool. I think that's it for today. Okay, great. All right, All right Ben. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Yeah, we'll talk to you next time.